You're listening to a music and talk episode where full songs and talk segments play together only on Spotify. Best of all, you can create your own music and talk show for free with Anchor, Spotify's podcasting platform. Get started at anchor.fm slash music and talk. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash M-U-S-I-C-A-N-D-T-A-L-K. A lot of spelling there, but just do it. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh, my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford, or its affiliates. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults with zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. You know what the weirdest job was in the music industry in the early 90s? Being the guy on the blockbuster rap album who pretends to talk with a gun in his mouth. This guy appears on both Dr. Dre's The Chronic and the Notorious B.I.G.'s Ready to Die. I assume it's different guys, actually, but you never know. Maybe there's only one guy in the world who can do this convincingly. Very specific skill set. First, we get Dr. Dre menacing the guy deep into the chronic in 1992. Fantastic baseline, by the way. It's a shame the guy missed it. And then, deep into the Notorious B.I.G.'s debut album, Ready to Die, in 1994, on the song Who Shot Ya? Technically, it's a single from early 95, but it's on the Ready to Die reissue. Don't argue with me right now. The poor guy with a gun in his mouth is back, and now it's Biggie Smalls menacing him. Look at you Can't talk with a gun in your mouth, Bitch-ass Six gunshots feels excessive to me. Let me ask you something. Can you picture either Dr. Dre or the Notorious B.I.G. actually doing this to somebody? It's a macabre question, I realize, but why are you listening to this music if you don't want to picture stuff like this? Is it frightening to you, this image, or is it just kind of gross? To me, it's mostly just gross. You know what frightens me? The thought of Biggie's mother, Valetta Wallace, listening to her son, Christopher Wallace, pretending to put a gun in a guy's mouth. Her disapproval, her revulsion, her fury. That frightens me. That compels me. Let me give you an example. I just watched this Netflix documentary, Biggie, I Got a Story to Tell. Came out in March 2021. Mostly covers Biggie's early years, his childhood, his drug-dealing adolescence, the road to ready to die. The best moment in this movie, the scariest moment in this movie, comes after a story told to us by his childhood friend, Damien Butler, D-Rock. This is back during their drug-dealing adolescence. So the two guys are in Christopher's bedroom, and they've got a plate of crack, and they set it by 
the window to let it dry, and they leave the house for a couple hours, and they come back to discover that Christopher's mother, Valletta, has cleaned his room. And she says, why did you leave a plate full of days-old mashed potatoes in your room? She'd scraped out the plate into the trash. Had no idea it was crack. She thought it was mashed potatoes. The camera then cuts from D-Rock to Valletta, who's sitting in a beautiful living room, a lot of flowers, staring out these giant windows with warm light pouring through them. And this is what she says. Jesus Christ. That bastard. I never knew. I don't know if a human being can be so mad at a dead person. She's not finding out that they weren't mashed potatoes on camera, by the way. This is a classic Biggie story. It's a staple of the classic Biggie story industrial complex. It's in Cheo Hadari Coker's pretty fantastic biography on Biggie called Unbelievable, which came out back in 2003. Old story. But I think we can agree that for her, this wound is still fresh. That was a big shocker. That means he brought it into my house. He disrespected my house. That's a hook, dude. The melodiousness of Biggie's mother's indignance. It's a shame Daft Punk just retired. He brought it into my house. He disrespected my house. It's awesome. It's terrifying. Her anger is still present tense in a way that makes her son present tense. And I am grateful. My name is Rob Harvilla. This is 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. It's time for the Notorious B.I.G. It's time for Juicy. I'm going to level with you. I've been dreading this episode, the Biggie episode, the weight of it, the density, the tragedy, the morbidity. I don't really want to talk about Tupac at all, for example, here, if that's all right with you. The Biggie and Tupac industrial complex, their whole deal is pretty well documented at this point. Slate's Slow Burn podcast did a whole really great season on Biggie and Tupac back in 2019. There's several good movies about... There's several movies about Biggie and Tupac. We got it. You got it. Enough about Biggie and Tupac. These days, I find myself more interested in Christopher and Valletta a boy and his mother. The stories the boy tells about growing up with his mother and his mother's ongoing efforts to clarify the exaggerations in those stories. There's a dialogue happening here, still happening here. It's a combative dialogue, Jesus Christ, that bastard, but the love flowing between mother and son here, still flowing between mother and son, is a visceral thing that I hear all over Juicy. And I'm grateful for that, too. I know some of the people Ready to Die is dedicated to, according to Juicy, by the way. At this point, I think everyone does. This album is dedicated to all the teachers that told me I never amount to nothing. To all the people that lived above the buildings that I was hustling from that called the police on me when I was just trying to make some money to feed my daughter. But this album is really dedicated to his mother. I feel strongly about this. So... How in-depth a Biggie Smalls primer do you even require at this point? How fast can I do this? I'm going to try to go at 1.5 speed manually. Christopher George Latour Wallace, born in Brooklyn in 1972, raised by a single mother, Valletta, in Bed-Stuy, the border of Clinton Hill and Bed-Stuy. Bed-Stuy sounds cooler. His mother tried to keep him out of trouble, tried to protect him from the seedy allure of Fulton Street in the 80s, especially to the point of virtually forbidding young Christopher from leaving the house or the stoop. 
Young Christopher leaves the stoop. This is the crack era. He starts selling crack. Those aren't mashed potatoes. Also, he soon discovers that he might be the greatest rapper in history. Deep, booming, warm, menacing, awe-inspiring voice. Like if the Grand Canyon were a person. Like if Brooklyn, in all its glory and atrocity, could be distilled into a person. How many rappers in history do you suppose have rhymed Rolexes with Lexus? My sincere guess is 400,000. But young Christopher is the only one who makes you feel every glorious atom of every syllable of the word Rolexes. I want it all from the Rolexes to the Lexus. Getting paid is all I expected. You could live forever like royalty in that one word when he says it. He battles a few guys and annihilates them basically by standing next to them. He's six foot plus and weighs 300 plus. He makes a demo tape that winds up in the hands of one Sean Puffy Combs, producer, rapper, executive, narcissist, visionary, dancer all up in the videos. He signs young Christopher to Uptown Records, Heavy D, Jodeci, etc. Except Puff Daddy gets fired from Uptown Records for acting like Puff Daddy and so instead Instead, Puff ascends to the mountaintop via his new label, Bad Boy, whose king-making star attraction is one Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, a.k.a. the Black Frank White, a.k.a. the Notorious B.I.G. His first song is called Party and Bullshit. He is a high school dropout who already knows more about the world than most college graduates. He has a daughter. He is married to R&B singer Faith Evans. His mother disapproves of the vast majority of everything he's doing at this point, and his debut album, Ready to Die, comes out in 1994 and might be the greatest rap album in history. And if you don't know, now you know. That could have been faster and shorter. I got hung up on Rolexes there for a second, as one does. So by 1994, New York City is not the end-all, be-all of rap music anymore. Arguably, it's not even the epicenter of rap music anymore, depending on how obsessed you were with the West Coast, with L.A., with Dr. Dre's The Chronic, on which Dr. Dre wistfully raps the following. Things didn't change on this side. Remember they used to thump, but now they blast, right? And now, in the first 10 seconds of Things Done Changed, the first actual song on Biggie's Ready to Die, amid the three other major samples already colliding in midair, there's Dre again. And I am grateful for this, too, for the bridge this builds, however tenuous, between Biggie and Dre, between Bad Boy Records and Death Row Records, between the East Coast and the West Coast. Things Done Changed is luxurious and vicious. All the guns, the chalk body outlines, the actual bodies, the parents terrified of their own pager-wielding children. But Biggie saves his single hardest line for last. Shit. My mama got cancer in the breast. Don't ask me why I'm motherfucking stressed. Things done change. Valetta Wallace would beat cancer. She would survive cancer. Valetta Wallace would survive her son. This album came out in September 94, which means that by October 94, New York City is functionally a giant parking lot in which every car is blasting a different song from Ready to Die. It's quite harmonious, really. Nod your head approvingly at whichever car you like, though maybe avoid the cars blasting the stick-up anthem, Gimme the Loot. If aliens are ever about to blow up planet Earth and only two-thirds of the world's population will fit in our escape shuttles, maybe let's just leave behind the one-third of the world's population who still thinks that there are two different 
different rappers on Gimme the Loot and don't realize that it's just Biggie already flaunting his dramatic range. Hold up, he got a fucking bitch in the car. Fur coats and diamonds. She thinks she's a superstar. Oh, Biggie, let me jack her. I'll kick her in the back, hit her with the cat. Chill, shorty, let me do that. I picture his mother listening to that, just gazing out the window. Biggie pulls the same trick on Warning, in which he basically notifies himself of an imminent robbery attempt against himself, an attempt that is, of course, doomed to catastrophic failure, the red dots, etc. They even heard about the crypt, you bought your mom's up, Florida, the fifth corridor, called the coroner. It's gonna be a lot of slow singing and flower bringing if my burglar alarm starts ringing. I have this really unpleasant memory of Jeremy Piven rapping the whole first verse of Warning during some random TV interview, but I can't find that video now, which means that it's possible that I made it up, which is even more unpleasant if you're me. Let's dip back into the classic Biggie story industrial complex. Brooklyn's own Easy Mo B produced a bunch of early Biggie tracks, and he likes to talk about how disturbed he was the first time he heard Biggie rap these lines from Ready to Die, the song. My shit is deep, deeper than my grave, G. I'm ready to die and nobody can save me. Fuck the world, fuck my moms and my girl. My life is played out like a jerry curl. I'm ready to die. So Easy Moby says, do you even hear what you just said? And Biggie says, yeah. And Easy Moby says, fuck your moms. And Big says, I'm just trying to say that I'm ready to die for this shit. This is urgent. You got to be willing to do whatever you got to do to make this paper. There are 400,000 rappers out there who are willing to say anything. And maybe five rappers in history who sound like they mean it. Biggie was one of them. You can also feel every atom of every syllable of his various sex boasts, whether you're into that sort of thing or not. Really know I got the cleanest, meanest, genius. You never seen this stroke of genius. As Ready to Die progresses, the mood darkens and hardens. And on songs like Everyday Struggle, you get a panoramic view of 80s and 90s Brooklyn, both the glory and the atrocity. And you can hear the urgency in his voice intensifying as the music around him gets prettier. I'm seeing body after body and I'm Mayor Giuliani ain't trying to see no black man turn to John Gotti. And then comes the song Suicidal Thoughts, which ends the original album and ends with Biggie attempting suicide, the gunshot, the dropped phone, after he's rapped at length about his remorse and shame and self-loathing. A central tenet of the classic Biggie story industrial complex is that Ready to Die is cinematic, that Puff Daddy is one of the producers and the central sonic architect is the director and Biggie's in the leading role. Think Coppola and Pacino or Scorsese and De Niro. Frankly, I picture Puff more as a Nancy Myers type, like getting really into the layouts of the kitchens. But Suicidal Thoughts is the bleak and shocking twist ending. One last brutal reminder of how much Big means all of it. All my life I've been considered as the worst. Lying to my mother, even stealing out a purse. Crime after crime, from drugs to extortion. I know my mother wish she got a fucking abortion. It's enough to make you almost wish you were one of those people whose personal version of Ready to Die has only two songs on it. Another central tenet of the classic Biggie story industrial complex is that he was leery of his slicker, poppier, cheerier songs. Puff had to talk big into recording them. Puff insisted they'd make Big famous. And Puff being right a lot of the time is maybe the single most maddening thing about Puff. 
Biggie gravitated toward the songs with, let's say, an 80s Fulton Street attitude. The grime, the menace, the almost erotic sense of danger. Think unbelievable. Think me and my bitch. But on this album, it was Big Papa that made him truly famous. That's and juicy. Here comes the first line of Big's first verse. You know it. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. And already this song is famous. Already an all-timer. Took three seconds. You can feel the hunger in his voice, and you can hear the awe in his voice as it dawns on him in this moment that his hunger might actually be sated. This is the moment where Biggie makes it. The moment where he ascends the mountaintop and maybe climbs onto the cross. I'm looking on eBay right now, and for $155, I can buy a copy of the September 1997 issue of Word Up magazine. It's in excellent condition. Both Biggie and Tupac are on the cover. Tupac's picture is a little bigger because he's shirtless. The cover line is, why they'll never die, with an exclamation point. I'm grateful for that exclamation point. Born the opposite of a winner. Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner? But my single favorite thing about Juicy Now is the never-ending multimedia Valletta Wallace fact-checking of Juicy. This is a song about how hard Christopher Wallace used to have it, and he did come of age in 1980s Brooklyn, and he did never really know his father. He did, for a time, deal drugs to support both him and his daughter, but Valletta would like to clarify that he didn't have it this hard. For example, Valletta would like to clarify that they never actually had sardines for dinner. We used to fuss when the landlord dissed us. No heat. Wonder why Christmas missed us. Valletta would like to clarify that Christmas never missed them, even though she was a Jehovah's Witness and therefore did not technically celebrate Christmas. Thinking back on my one-room shack, now my mom pimps a act with minks on the back. Valletta would like to clarify that their Brooklyn apartment had seven and a half rooms. The one-room shack is Biggie's bedroom, the one with the mashed potatoes. For the record. Everyone's bedroom is a one-room shack. And she loves to show me off, of course. Smiles every time my face is up in the sauce. This is the moment in the Juicy video, of course, where Valletta herself appears, smiling, as she reads an issue of The Source. Biggie's not even on the cover. Easy e is on the cover. But like five seconds later, she and Christopher are reenacting a fight in their kitchen, and she throws something at him from across the room. I'm not sure what. Maybe a handful of mashed potatoes. Maybe this is a reenactment. Maybe it's not. At this point, Christopher's got a lot to answer for. Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis. When I was dead broke, man, I couldn't picture this. A striking detail in the Biggie biography, Unbelievable, is the list of all the stuff Valletta Wallace bought her young son in a vain attempt to keep him from leaving the house and going down to Fulton Street. She bought him the boombox he wanted. He wanted either the Sharp or the Sony. She bought him the Fat Boys and Run DMC tapes he wanted. And she bought him the video games he wanted. At that point, most kids wanted either an Atari or an Intellivision or a ColecoVision. But young Christopher had all three. I think even back then on Juicy, he could picture owning two video game systems. But I like picturing this too. As songs like this get older and grow timeless... And it gets harder to picture the specifics of the era in which they were made. One strategy you might employ is to picture the rapper playing a video game that was popular the year the song came out. So like the Notorious B.I.G. playing Toe Jam and Earl or whatever. I'm speculating. There's dudes playing Street Fighter 2 in the Juicy video, which I appreciate. It's Chun-Li versus Ryu. 
This works for producers, too. The beat for Juicy, as you might know, is a flip of the 1983 hit Juicy Fruit from the funk soul group M2 May. Is flip the right word? Flip sounds a little too forceful. In what would grow to be the grand puffy tradition, the Juicy Beat is more just Juicy Fruit jostled slightly. You can picture Puff just hitting play on Juicy Fruit, but like extravagantly. There is some dispute as to who actually made this beat. The great Pete Rock has insisted for years that he cooked up the original version, and Puff just basically stole it. But Juicy is officially credited to Puff and Polk, he of production duo The Trackmasters, Polk and Tone. I read an interview with those guys where they talk about spending a lot of time in the early 90s at a video arcade at 47th and Broadway in Manhattan, playing a basketball arcade game called Run and Gun. You remember that one? I vaguely do. It did not quite reach NBA Jam levels of cultural saturation. But yeah, picture one of the dudes who officially produced Juicy playing run and gun. Cost four quarters to play a whole 12-minute basketball game. Polk and Tone say that they met Steve Stout there, the record executive. They all played run and gun together. I don't know. It helps me see the era a little clearer. It's just a thought. I really like Puff on the chorus, actually, murmuring, so good, so good, in the deep background, like he's whispering it directly into Biggie's ear. Just rap the fucking song. It's going to make you famous. You don't have to like it. We'll put Unbelievable on the B-side. Just do it. And Biggie did it. Juicy hit number one on the Billboard Rap Singles chart. Cracked the top 40 of the Hot 100. This is not impressive, chart-wise, really. But 25 years later, it's probably top 10 most famous rap songs of all time. Ready to Die eventually went six times platinum. Sold six million copies in the United States alone. Biggie was famous. Biggie was immortal. His next album in 1997 was a double album called Life After Death. That one went diamond. More than five million copies of a double album sold in the U.S., the first full song on Life After Death is called Somebody's Gotta Die. And in the first few lines, we see that Big has upgraded his dreams substantially. I'm sitting in the crib dreaming about jets and coops, The way salt shoots and how to sell records like Snoop. By the time Life After Death was in stores, Biggie was already gone. Christopher Wallace was shot and killed on March 9th, 1997. He was 24. Tupac Shakur had died of gunshot wounds on September 13th, 1996. I don't want to talk about it. But I do want to propose that Juicy also helps us see what Tupac and Biggie might have seen in each other. As the Biggie and Tupac industrial complex is happy to remind you, they were real-life friends long before they became magazine cover enemies. Tupac loved party and bullshit, and each man had something the other man wanted in terms of reputation, in terms of persona. In Unbelievable, the Biggie biography, Cheo Hodari Coker writes about Tupac's childhood. He says... Shakur recalled many times when his family had nothing to eat and no money. He would get picked on and teased because of his raggedy secondhand clothes. To Big, this represented a realness that he had never experienced. Shakur grew up without ColecoVision, designer clothes, or expensive stereo equipment. Every day really was a struggle. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity 
on your real life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans at Empower What's Next. Start today at empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln and the all new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. What Tupac might have saw in Big, what he envied in Big, was Fulton Street, was that street credibility, which is a different kind of struggle. What we all struggle with now is how to separate these two flawed, fascinating, hyper-talented, but emphatically mortal men from the Biggie and Tupac industrial complex. We worship these guys now, many of us, and we worship their music, but we also abstract them as people nearly beyond recognition. You're nobody till somebody kills you, but the first time somebody paints you into a mural, you become somebody else. So we got to take the shreds of humanity where we can find them. And all these years later, it's still often Valletta Wallace who supplies that humanity for me. Biggie and Tupac, the Nick Broomfield documentary from 2002. Like I was saying earlier, it's one of the movies that feeds into all that myth-making. It's mostly Nick Broomfield conspiracy theorizing, walking around with his long, dumb microphone bothering people. I find it very stressful. I can only really handle this movie when Valletta is on screen. First thing Nick says about her is that she yells at him for bothering people. He says, she insisted that I adopt a more ingratiating style. Later on, we watch her yell at Biggie's old friend Lil C's when he can't figure out where to park his car. It's fantastic. At one point, Nick asks her how she'd describe her son as a person. He was somebody at times you want to kill, you want to strangle, but I'm his mother. You know, he was a very generous person. He was um, ungentle at times, very loving, very sincere. And by then, she'd already quite vividly described her son's music. Was it filth? Yes, it was filth. Some of it was filth. But it was a filthy story, a story that was out there, a story that he wanted to be told. 
The foundation of the classic Biggie story industrial complex is that Biggie himself was one of the great storytellers in rap history. Think warning. Think I got a story to tell. Think me and my bitch. But he was never more compelling than when he was telling his own story, even when he fudged it. Even when he added a few guns in people's mouths or forgot to mention a video game system or three. And what keeps Juicy present tense for me and keeps Christopher Wallace present tense for me is that I still hear it as their story. A boy and his mother. My guest today is the one, the only, John Caramonica, pop critic. (laughs) Already (laughs) interrupting me. Pop pop critic for the New York Times, host of the New York Times podcast, international sensation, John Caramonica. Welcome, sir. I am. I'm moisturized extra for this. I did. You can hear it. You can hear. Oh, it's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. The dewiness all the way from the skin <laughs> all the way to the vocal tone. We'll get uh, to that. Rob, what a joy. What a privilege. It is, an, it is an absolute joy to hear your voice, to see your face, to talk to you about Biggie Smalls today. John, thank you so much for being here. My severe privilege okay. to do this. We'll see, but okay. All right. <laughs> uh, so much has been written about Biggie at this point. So many movies, so many podcasts. Is is there a specific element of Biggie's craft or his personality that's been lost or at least obscured by all of this canonization? Like, what do we not talk enough about when we talk about Biggie? You know, I was thinking about this very question a lot in the wake of the recent Netflix documentary, Mm because obviously history gets ossified based on who's writing it or who remembers it. But, but also like people that we've lost, people that we've lost young, they tend to get fixed into certain poses, certain postures, certain perspectives. And it's easy to forget that those poses or postures are distillations of a, of a much more complicated and and varied life. And so my thing with Biggie and something that obviously is almost like no way to mitigate, but the tragic circumstance of, of how he was lost and the kind of chaos that was happening in hip hop during the mid nineties that led to that can be louder sometimes than the musical legacy. And also the parts of the musical legacy that don't necessarily comport with like the larger arc of rap history. And so that, stresses me out. That worries me. And I'm glad, one of the things I was glad to see in the doc was, I just feel like you see, like, facial expressions that you don't even Mm. think of as, like, biggie facial expressions. And it's just, like, a very healthy reminder that, like, when we are fed history, when we are fed certain narratives, we are really being fed a fixed micro version of someone. Um, Also, hip-hop has changed so much over these 25 years that the things that Biggie did that I think if you were a younger person looking back at it and you'd be like, well, okay, it's hard to remember just how exceptional they were at the time and just how unusual, how, how sui generis they felt in that moment. I mean, you can't imagine things that literally every single kid on SoundCloud does now. And it's super normalized and an accepted part of the genre, whether it's presentational or or musical. These are choices that felt shocking in 1993, 1994. Uh, They were things that were testing the boundaries of of the genre at that time. 
And we forget that now because so much of it is just woven into the DNA now. Right. And I, it does not compute for me that he was 24. Blueface is 24. Wow. I just, I, I cannot picture. Damn, you Googled. You really, I just you Googled did your that Googles. just now. I don't know Ooh. how old Blueface is organically. I Googled that <laughs> fact for you. Blueface is a, a, a charming young man with a challenging Instagram presence. Absolutely. <laughs> what did Biggie mean to you in real time? Oh, I thought you were going to say, what did Biggie mean to Blueface? <laughs> <That> is, <laughs> we'll get sure him I, in here later. Yeah, I'm not sure, I'm pre- not sure I was prepared for that question. Um, a couple things. One, being from New York, growing up listening to New York radio, yeah. hearing a voice with that dexterity, that authority, that storytelling gift, mm-hmm. that theatricality, you know, wit, humor, self-deprecation. Those were radical, new, fresh concepts to be all in one person. Um, when you think of even the New York hip hop of two to three years prior, extremely lyrically intense, good storytelling, but maybe not with the sense of grandeur that mm-hmm. Puff brought to Biggie. That's where right. the iterative changes. Puff basically takes it and, and makes something genuinely cinematic out of it. Also, just, you know, hometown hero shit, right? It's exciting that the best rapper on the planet is from the borough that you grew up in. Like, that's that's an incredible way to feel. And, like, I'm right. sure that people who grew up in L.A. felt that way about N.W.A. Or, you know, people who grew up in the Bay felt that way about Too Short or E-40 or whatever. It's a specific micro thing, but I remember the intensity of the feeling that he was of where we were from. Like, that mattered. And then also, during that time period, you know, I was DJing college radio, and it was, like, very exciting to get those 12 inches. Like, to, as those things were being serviced, you'd be like, oh, my God, like, another, you know, like, juicy on one side, unbelievable on the mm-hmm. other side. Like, oh, mm-hmm. what? This is crazy. And those things, those they became almost like uh, fetish items in a way. They were sure. so special and got just a tremendous amount of play. It's Look, it wasn't a secret, right? I mean, these are, like, globally popular records, but there was something that still felt like a little local, a little private, a little personal about them, at least for sure. me at that time. Because, right, because the historical narrative now is that New York rap was struggling at that point, or at least they didn't have an answer to the chronic or doggy right. style. They didn't have a, an equivalent superstar figure. Like, do you think that's true? Or is that, in a sense, like New York, as usual, just agonizing over its own clout? Here's what I think New York didn't have. And I don't think it's that it didn't have a superstar, you know, or it didn't have a king or a kingmaker or a queen. You know, it's right. like... You have Rakim, you have De La Soul and Tribe Called Quest, and you have Big Daddy Kane. And it's not that there's not great rappers in New York. You have KRS-One. You know, it's like, it's not that you don't have era-defining rappers. It's not that you don't have rappers who don't have um, national attention. It's not that. Yeah. But the thing that The Chronic did, and I, I almost don't even know if it, did it intentionally or it just was a byproduct of just how big the chronic became. But the sense that the music that was made in your neighborhood or in your town could actually become not just defining for hip hop as a whole, wherever mm-hmm. people were playing it, but could be defining for all of American pop the culture. Suburbs. Yeah. That notion 
was still very, very fresh, was still novel. And so I think what you hear in the first Biggie Smalls album is this, it's not even a tug of war, right? It's a little bit of an evolution. It's saying, yeah, Biggie, I mean, if you go back pre-Juicy, you go to Party and Bullshit, Mm -hmm. Biggie wraps his ass off. Mm -hmm. We all accept that. We all know that. But we also know that there is this possibility that if you make songs that are a little bit softer around the edges, a little bit more melodically sophisticated, a little bit more historically ear-minded, mm-hmm. if you make a song like that, you might reach people who never knew that party and bullshit existed. Right. You could possibly reach young people and old people. You could reach black folks and white folks and everybody else. You have the potential to blanket. And that is really what this first album, that's the story that this album is telling because you have songs that are like real rapper songs. Yeah. I mean, probably my favorite songs are like the real rapper songs on this record. And his too. Yeah. Undoubtedly. But you also have these other songs that again, in 2021 don't seem like concessions, but at that time, those were things that people were like actively debating. Uh, you mentioned that Netflix documentary, I Got a Story to Tell. And I, one of my favorite parts of that is when they talk about his voice, like the percussion of his voice, like being like a Max Roach drum solo. Yeah, yeah. Like, is the deification of Biggie, like the instant deification of Biggie as a rapper, is that more about technique or is that more about his personality? I think the deification is probably a little bit more personality driven. Yeah. It's important to remember that this time period is still a time period where technical expertise really matters. Right. It's very, very hard to become a super popular rapper in the early to mid-90s without being also what we would think of as a classically skilled rapper. Barbs, that has yes. changed. Or the, the notion of skill has changed. Uh, you know, <laughs> we'll leave that to the Twitter wars about who has, you know, like, I don't want to have, like, a Playboy Cardi conversation right now. You know, Please, please but no. at that time... You had to be able to spit. It was just like very, very straightforward. You had to be able to spit. So the deification, it's obvious that he could spit. It's obvious. But the fact that he was able to take that and make something so epic and grand out of it, that's the deification combined, of course, with the horrible circumstances of 96, 97. I mean, this is really, I actually, you can't really overstate the loss of innocence moment that that like 12 to 18 month period was i mean these are the people pock and big who had been advertised to us as the people who would carry the genre into the future the future right the people who were setting aesthetic trends the people who were leading celebrities i mean pock was a movie star Mm -hmm. in addition to a rapper these kind of meta narratives about east coast west coast and bad boy death row like these were loud stories, you know, whether they were completely 100% right all the time, it's obviously more complicated, but to have that all ripped away in 96 and 97 was really damaging. And I think you could not help but deify both of them. There was, there was no option at that point because something kind of irretrievable had been lost. Right. No one's ever going to feel, at least no one of my generation, is ever going to feel about hip hop in 98 the way they felt in 95 because something was completely ripped away and, right. and something was proven to be far more fragile 
than it, it appeared from outside. Right. How influential, how culpable do you think 90s rap media was when it came to Biggie and Tupac, how that escalated and how it ended? Like, was tragedy inevitable there? Or did all those magazine covers like actively help push that situation toward tragedy? It's a tough question because, I mean, I obviously should caveat this by saying like a lot of the people who were at the magazines at that era are like, my dear friends, my mentors, right. like the people who taught me how to do what I do and like how to do what I love. It was the biggest story and it was at their doorstep. Right. And they could tell it in a way that other outlets could not tell Nobody it. else could. Right. I mean, I know that the people who were there, they sometimes will think back about that era and, and wonder if things could have been handled differently or if they, it could have been a more proactive instead of amplifying the tension. Maybe it could have been aimed towards easing the tensions. Right. At the same time, what was happening with Biggie and Pac, the stuff that ends up in the magazines is only a fraction of what's really out there. There's a whole bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff, street stuff, gang stuff. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that's just not in the media. You know, it's not being covered. And not that it should be necessarily or could be, but I say that only to, to underscore that what was going on between those two camps was ultimately much bigger than isn't on the cover of Vibe, isn't right. on the cover of the source. Yeah. And so I think it's tough. Like I mean, these are these are ethical questions we think about, you know, even to this day, as far as covering rappers in crime and going into jail or coming out of jail or the way that lyrics do or do not inter you know, uh DAs holding artist lyrics against them. Right. I right. mean, these are these are ongoing questions. And I think the ethical obligations for journalists are to tell the true stories or the truest possible story that you can. Yeah. I think in, in the case of how rap magazines in the mid-90s handled it, I mean, I don't think the right approach would have been to turn away from it. Right. But it's also it's just tough to know because there were so many parts of that story and which we've learned. I mean, you mentioned the kind of Biggie and Pac industrial complex, all these sort of like documentaries or true crime TV shows or books, various books uh, from investigators and so on and so forth. The amount that we now know about those circumstances that we didn't know then really makes it clear that what was happening in, in rap magazines at the time was ultimately, I don't want to say a sliver, but it was like certainly not the whole story. Right. When I watch those documentaries or even watch the Juicy video, like I'm drawn to his mother. I'm drawn to Valletta, yeah. you know, as like a personality. But I worry about that. I worry about like reducing her to a stock character. You know, she lost her son, you know, and even yeah. today she still spends much of her life like on camera talking about her son, telling stories, refuting narratives. Like, is there a humanity that's lost when we talk about one person and one person's family this much? Like, do we lose sight of these people as just people? It's tough to know because I think there are people who have been in similar circumstances who have completely receded from the public eye, who have chosen to just say, I don't want to deal with it. It's, right. you know, it's not for me. I think continuing to sort of like honor her son's legacy perhaps is the thing that is the most generative for her. So maybe I'm alone in this. I don't know. But even now in 2021, like I don't want to watch that Netflix documentary and not hear her perspective. Of course. And, and also, the kind of depth and nuance of how he was as a young person, which is one of the things I think this, this documentary was like useful for and interesting. It, it added a lot of uh, texture to 
our understanding of a young Christopher Wallace. I want to hear that. I need her to hear it. And I also, I like that she's even like being awakened to certain things, like learning about him and like being open to look. It's not fixed in her mind. She's like learning new information and feeling new things about it. That's really powerful. And I think that's, unfortunately, the narrative of his life was cut short. But the way we tell these stories for decades and decades and decades needs that layer, I think, in order to be really, really powerful and uh, to be even uh, the most powerful it can be. Uh, Just to wrap up, like, what do you remember about the aftermath after he died? Like you say, there was a vacuum, you know, and there was just a loss of innocence. Like, how long did that last and what sort of pulled rap music out of it? I think anybody of my generation could tell you like where they were uh, when they found out, you know, I remember I was up, I was finishing my college thesis late at night, you know, it was like the last week of working on it. And uh, the girl who lived next door to me in the dorm, Ruby, shout out Ruby, uh, knocked on my door and told me that Biggie had gotten shot. And, uh, you know, this was overnight. So it must've been like three, four in the morning uh, on the East coast. And, um, it's uh I mean you can tell it's still like a little unsettling right like it's it's still a little unsettling to me uh yeah. to feel that deeply about it when you're a fan of something and you know you associate it with joyful moments in your life and uh your own developing growth and maturity and personality and presence in the world. Yeah. Uh, and then it gets taken away. It's hard to feel like you're standing on flat ground. Yeah. Uh, and I remember that very vividly. I mean, I'm still like literally in this moment, I, I I'm feeling it. I, I guess it must've been 98. I, I can't quite remember, but you know, when puff started putting out records and you know, mm-hmm. every breath you take and the locks did will always love big papa. Like, Obviously, those are big records. I, I remember fe- they felt like it felt like it was the tail end of a narrative. Right, John. Thank you so much for being here. This has been wonderful. Again, it is wonderful to hear your voice, to see your face, to be interrupted by you only a few times. It's I know. Sorry, I was trying to be it's, nice. It's enthusiasm, and I appreciate it. That's that's right. Put it in my <laughs> Apple Podcast comments. <laughs> Write it in the comments. It's enthusiasm. This is a Spotify exclusive, John. But thank you. It's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> thank you for being here, John. Of course. Thanks very much to our guest this week, the great John Caramonica. Thanks to our producers, Justin Sales and Isaac Lee. And thanks to you, as always, for listening. And now, without further ado, here is the Notorious B.I.G. with Juicy. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. 
ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.